let us pray. So, Father, even as we've sung, we are reminded of your loving kindness and mercy toward us who you have created. So, Lord, draw us close to you right now. Take us more deeply into the mysteries of your grace and the cross of Christ. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. We may be seated. Good evening, everyone. Thank you all for being here. This is um, Ash Wednesday, take four. So um, we've had wonderful attendance at all of our services today, and so good to see all of you. I invite you to take out your Bibles or devices with Scripture on them and turn to the second chapter of the prophet Joel. We'll be focusing on those verses specifically tonight. Well, today, as you're well aware, is the Ash Wednesday, the beginning of Lent, a season of preparation, a season of reflection culminating with our observance of Christ's passion and resurrection. In Charles Dickens' novel, A Tale of Two Cities, we hear these very familiar opening words. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epic of belief. It was the epic of incredulity. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. We had everything before us. We had nothing before us. We were all going direct to heaven. We were all going direct the other way. In short, the period was so far like the present period that some of its noisiest authorities insisted on its being received for good or for evil in the superlative degree of comparison only. Our preaching text this evening from Joel chapter 2 is a tough passage of Scripture. Joel 2 depicts God's Old Testament people in what is seemingly the worst of times. Looking back to chapter 1, through a plague of locusts and extreme drought, the landscape is utterly decimated. In chapter 1, verse 2, we are asked, Has anything like this ever happened in your days or in the days of your forefathers? The fields and livestock are lost The land is parched. Verse 12 tells us that the people's joy has withered away. And this is all the consequence of ongoing sin and disobedience. Our first impression accurately is that this is an account of God's judgment. And indeed it is. It's a seemingly hopeless situation. However, as we probe more deeply, that is not all that we see here. Yes, God is indeed judging sin. More specifically, he is judging ongoing patterns of repeated sin with no repentance. But what we also see here is an account of the possibilities and the hope offered by God's grace. We read of the possibility of restoration and the fulfillment of God's covenant promises. If we would continue to chapter 3, promises which are fulfilled not only in that day, but also centuries later on the day of Pentecost and even down to this very day in the lives of God's people. So in our time together this evening, I want to look at promise and possibility offered to God's people not because of their worthiness, not because 
of our worthiness, but because of the grace and mercy of a faithful, loving, covenant-keeping God. And then second, I want to briefly explore exactly what the possible change of heart described in Joel 2 looks like and how that applies to you and me, especially as we begin this season of Lent. So let's begin with possibilities and promise. A lot of years ago now, because I don't like to even think about how old I am, I had a good friend, a hunting buddy, and I know um, those of you who know me that know that before I moved down here and uh, moved away from access to the woods of Maryland, I did a lot of hunting. But my friend Gary was an avid deer hunter, and we used to hunt together a lot, but he was hunting by himself one time over on the eastern shore of Maryland, and it was in late winter, and he was, Gary, we used portable tree stands that we'd carried into the woods with us, and I was a 15 to 20 foot person with my tree stand. Gary was always a 20 to 30 foot person, which when you get up in a tree, I got to tell you, even a little bit of wind, when you're up that high, that tree really moves. Well, it was a sleet storm, and Gary also didn't wear a safety harness. Now, if I went up in a tree stand without a safety harness and fell out and survived, my wife would kill me. Um, she always make sure you've got your safety harness on. Make sure you have your cell phone on you. But Gary was up about 30 feet in a tree in a sleet storm with no safety harness. And the trunk of the tree got icy and his tree stand kicked sideways and threw him out. And he was thrust out and fell to the ground and broke his femur. And he was hunting alone in a very, very remote part of um, state public land on the eastern shore of Maryland. And over several hours, he managed to, in agony, drag himself to a footpath. And there he lay, not knowing what was going to happen. It was very cold, seriously concerned that he might freeze to death. And right as dark set in, he heard in the distance a car or truck door, and he began screaming for help at the top of his lungs. Unfortunately, two men who were coming out of a different area in that, that woods heard his cries and, and managed to find him and got him emergency help and got him to a hospital. He required surgery and pins and all kinds of things in his femur. But it seemed like a hopeless situation, and Gary very much has faced the reality that he might die in that moment. And all he could do, all he could do was cry out for help. And in a spiritual sense, that's what we see in Joel chapter 2. In a situation that from all appearances is a hopeless cause, too far gone. Through his prophet, God says to his people, even now, now is the time. In a sense, cry out for help. Return to me, as verse 12 says, with all of your hearts. And these words take us to the core issue here because this is a call to faith or to renewed faith. They had gotten it wrong. Perhaps just as some of us somewhere along the way have gotten it wrong. They were Hebrews, descendants of Abraham. And from all appearances, many of them presumed here that they presumed that because of their ancestry and because of their citizenship in Israel, they were in right relationship with God. 
It brings to mind St. Paul's words of self-description and indictment in Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 through 7. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. God's people on Joel's day were far too focused on externals. Things outside of themselves that they believe somehow gave them right standing before God. And this is a very dangerous line of thinking. And if you and I, brothers and sisters, aren't careful, any of us can easily become ensnared in this same kind of faulty and deficient thinking. I think there are at least two ways that that can happen, but I want to touch on two of them very briefly tonight. First, we say, I've been baptized, confirmed. I'm even a faithful church attender. I can recite the creeds. I receive Holy Communion. And please understand me, I am in no way minimizing or denigrating the power of God's grace in the sacraments of baptism and the laying on of hands for confirmation especially not the Holy Eucharist. And yet we can be in church and have experienced all of these things if we're not careful, never really come to grasp the essence of the gospel, salvation and forgiveness in a true, continuing, ongoing, lively, intimate faith. Listen to the words that parents make when their children are presented for baptism. And I'm going to use the masculine pronoun, not because I'm being sexist, but because I don't want to say his or her or him or her a half dozen times in the next 15 seconds, okay? So just please understand. So today, on behalf of this child, you shall make vows to renounce the devil and all his works, to trust God wholeheartedly, and to serve him faithfully. It is your task to see that this child is taught, and as soon as he is able to learn the meaning of all these vows, and of the faith that you will profess is revealed in the Holy Scriptures. He must come to put his faith in Jesus Christ and learn the creeds, the Lord's Prayer, the Ten Commandments, and all other things that a Christian ought to know, believe, and do for the welfare of his soul. When he has embraced all of these, he is to come to the bishop to be confirmed, that he may publicly claim the faith for his own and be further strengthened by the Holy Spirit to serve Christ and his kingdom. We must remember that our salvation is something that we can never earn. We are not born into it. We are not simply raised in it. It is by God's grace and God's gracious offer alone. And he, he, he pours his grace into us as we look to him and we trust him. And in the sacraments, he strengthens us and he assures us of his continuing work in our lives. Second, your eyes say, I've come to the place of recognizing the truth of the gospel. Perhaps we say, I've known the reality of a lively faith. But a distancing from God has occurred. Maybe patterns of blatant sin have crept in, but, but maybe not. Maybe the busyness of life, we can relate to this in Northern Virginia, 
Even good things have distracted me, and I've wandered from my first love. And somehow what was a deep, personal, living faith has morphed into going through the motions. And it's become an empty, hollow shell, devoid of the joy and depth of relationship that once was. And sometimes that can happen without even fully realizing that it's slipping away. I'm going to kind of tell kind of a, a, I've realized this is kind of a gross sermon illustration, but I'm, I'm going to use it anyway. I also do a lot of fishing. And in the Chesapeake Bay with fishing, we often use eels for bait. And sometimes you catch eels. Has anyone here besides me ever tried to handle an eel? Yeah. You can have a really good grip on that thing. And you think you've got a hold of it. And before you know it, it has slid out of your hand. And you've just got this residue of slime all over the palm of your hand. The only way to get a good grip on is with a pair of pliers, actually. But not to be crass and not to equate relationship with God to, to an eel slipping away, but, but that can happen spiritually, too, where we, we think we still are in that grasp and relationship of fullness and intimacy with God, and all of a sudden we realize we've just got the leftovers of that in our hands. Through Joel, through God's prophet, in the midst of horrific circumstances, God was calling his people back to real, intimate, loving fellowship with him. And brothers and sisters, even at the start of Lent, God calls you and me to the same kind of grace-filled, intimate relationship. Return to the Lord with all your heart. Rend your hearts and not your garments. God is reaching out and calling us, calling us afresh, maybe calling some of you for the first time then because you've never responded. He's calling you to return to him with all of your heart, with all of our heart. It's not a matter in Joel's day or in our day of some pagan notion of human experience, of going through some ritual or rite to somehow appease God's anger and that kind of thinking is actually pagan thinking. It's not biblical faith. And to attribute that kind of thinking even to the Old Testament sacrificial system is a misunderstanding of biblical faith. Because even in the Old Testament, God's people came and offered sacrifices and they obeyed the law as an expression of their heart fidelity to God and faith in the promise of the one to come who would be the ultimate sacrifice for sin. God calls each of us to a relationship with him that is both intensely personal, hear that, and also fully corporate at the same time. Christianity is not a solo affair. We are called to be in this together, brothers and sisters. You may ask about fasting, weeping, and mourning called for in Joel 2, verses 12 and 15. They very much have their place weeping and mourning for our sin and spiritual disciplines like prayer and fasting and meditating on God's word. But it's not about the externals, but rather the external responses need to reflect the deep work of genuine godly sorrow and repentance for wrongs that God by his Holy Spirit is working in us. They need to reflect the earnest of repentance and that our desire for intimacy with God is ever more important to us than food or drink or the things of this world. 
In 2 Corinthians 7.10, St. Paul writes, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. In Joel 2, verse 13, the second part of that verse, again, we read these words, Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. That is God's heart. And when we engage in spiritual practices, especially during the season of Lent, like fasting and extended periods of prayer, and meditating on God's word. It's not somehow about earning points with God. It's not somehow about us manipulating or forcing God's hand. It's about us making more space in our lives so God has more of us. It's an emptying out of the stuff and the clutter and the junk so there's more and more and more space for God to fill in our lives. And as we do that, we have the promise and possibility of returning to God in ever greater measure or for some of us returning to our first love. God promised that to his Old Testament people and God promises that same possibility to you and me. Second, the profound sense of urgency in all of this was not only individual it was collective. We see this in verses 15 through 17. In verse 15, blow the trumpet, sound the alarm, gather the people. Verse 16, the need for repentance in this day and the urgency was so great that even those normally exempt under the law, nursing infants and newlyweds, were called to be present. As one commentator says, the intensity of the people's repentance was to be matched by its extensiveness. There is an overarching principle we see in verses 15 through 17 as well, brothers and sisters, to kind of return to what I touched on a moment ago. We are in this together. Did you hear that? We are in this together. We need each other for better or for worse. Yes, each person, each of us must give an account to God individually. But when one of us hurts, we all hurt. When one of us is ensnared in a struggle with sin, it should bring pain to all of our hearts. Think about the prayers of confession in the Eucharistic service in the Book of Common Prayer. We confess that we have sinned against you. We, we, we. Conversely, when one is blessed, it blesses all of us. When one of us is built up or encouraged in the Lord, we are all strengthened. In our culture that places an extreme and unhealthy and unscriptural emphasis on individualism and personal autonomy, brothers and sisters, may God help us to never forget how much we need each other how we need to build each other up and strengthen the body and to cheer each other on in God's grace. We are the body of Christ together by God's design. And there's so much more that could be said about that. Joel 2 has a lot of difficult things in it. Words like repentance, 
can be unsettling, and I've quoted this before, but I'm going to say it again. I remember years ago, back in our days, Timmy's in my day in the Assemblies of God, um, the Assistant General Superintendent of the Assemblies of God, Charles Crabtree, saying one time, and I remember this, it sticks in my mind in a sermon, repentance is a good word, despite what the world might around us might say, repentance is a good word because it is a God word. Ash Wednesday, the beginning of Lent, the season set aside, especially to reflect on our sin, calls us to repentance. This season calls us, or in this season, God calls us to renew our own strength in our walk with him. And to reflect on all that compelled Jesus to lay down his life on the cross of Calvary. We're reminded of that by God in profound and fresh ways. And we're reminded that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, this wonderful, compassionate, loving God, loves and knows what's best for us, even in this day and in this season, just as he knew what was best for Old Testament Israel. And during these 40 days, during this season of Lent, he invites us anew into intimate, life-transforming, eternal fellowship with him. Think about that. One person at a time. So that together, we can have a fresh start. So that together, you and I can walk in godliness. No matter where you've been, What's happened, God is right there reaching out in his compassion, inviting us back into fullness of living, lively faith with him. One person at a time together, so that you and I, brothers and sisters, can press forward together as his redeemed people, as those called by his name. Let us pray. Father, how grateful we are for your grace and mercy that you are a faithful covenant-keeping God. You keep your promises. So, Lord, at the start of this season of Lent, bring us to that place of deep repentance and sorrow for our sin. From those th for those things which separate us from you. Lord, take us ever more deeply into the mystery of the cross of Christ, that Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, came and gave his life as a sacrifice for my sin, for our sin. And Lord, fill us with a sense of expectation as we look forward to walking not only the path to Golgotha, but also to the empty tomb. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.